Ruth chapter 4. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Please uh, bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we thank you for yet another opportunity to come here, to hear your word, to worship you, to lift you up. We know, Father, that you are enthroned upon our songs, as it says in Psalms. We pray, Father, that you reveal your throne more and more to us. Place our minds and our hearts more and more on heaven, that some of heaven may come into this world through us. We thank you for this word, and we pray, Father, that looking at the lives of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, that we may see you better and be like you and lift you up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, here we are at the last chapter of the book of Ruth, and there are some open threads dangling out there that, are, that have yet to find resolution. Some of them include Elimelech, Chilion, and Malon are still dead. We'll get to the end of the story, and they will remain dead. They will still be dead. Orpah, Naomi's other daughter-in-law, went back to her family home, her comfortable idols, and did not follow after Naomi and Ruth. Subsequently, she missed all this blessing. She had that opportunity to go with them, and she didn't. Naomi, of all people, encouraged her to return to her pagan gods. Orpah and all the other Gentiles in Moab and everywhere else are still outside the family of God. Ruth and Boaz, at the end of chapter 3, wanted to get married, but there is a nearer kinsman redeemer who could redeem the widowed Ruth. So how is that going to work out? There is still no king in Israel, not in chapter 3, not in chapter 4, not at the end of the book. And men are still doing what's right in their own eyes. At this point in the story, there is a lot of tension. How are these things going to be resolved? Let's recap what we've, what we've learned so far. At the beginning of the book, Naomi was a bitter widow, reluctantly following God. She was empty in a, both a spiritual and a physical sense. But as the so- story developed, Naomi was filled with grace, companionship, and hope through bo- both Ruth and Boaz. Boaz is a worthy man, but at the beginning of the story, he was alone, and God said that it is not good that man should be alone. Through this short book, Boaz loves the downtrodden by providing for both of the widows, while at the same time, God, through the widows, is providing him with a wife. Boaz demonstrates the blessing of obedience, the goodness of generosity. He is the image of his God, the God who is sanctifying and protecting him. There's an interesting thing about Boaz that I've left unsaid until this point. In Matthew 1.5, we learn that Boaz is actually the son of Rahab, a regenerated and redeemed prostitute from the book of Joshua. This explains a lot about him, actually. Rahab, if you guys know, is the one who saved the spies, um, who came into the family of God, married into Israel. She is Boaz's mother. That explains quite a lot about him. He loves much because he was raised by parents who knew what it meant to have been loved. At the beginning of our story, Ruth was a pagan, a foreigner who was outside the people of God. She was unprotected, friendless, childless, and without a husband. God gives her a heart for his glory. Ruth finds protection under the wings of the Lord and in the person in love of Boaz. God is faithful to her as his daughter. Nobody is left at this point where God had found them. We see them walk through real danger, real pain, and real toil as God sanctifies, protects, 
provides, and loves them. The book of Ruth is full of tension. Some of that tension is resolved, like Ruth finding a place amongst the people of God, but some of it is not. What about the rest of the Moabites? Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz's emptiness is filled. Their loneliness is swallowed up in the love of God that he ministers to each of them through one another. God is working through the lives of these very small people to tell a very big story. It begins before they enter the stage, and it goes on after they have left the stage. All of these characters take their place, believe it or not, in the lineage of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. These are small people, but when you add a big God, it becomes a very grand story. In the life of Ruth and in my life and in your life, this is all true. You take little people, you add a great God, and you get a grand story. The thing that I want to talk about today, though, isn't so much even chapter 4. It's the unwritten chapter, the chapter that was left out, chapter 5. And that chapter is what I want to talk about because all the elements of this story point to it. And chapter 5 is actually about Jesus. He's the final chapter that is foreshadowed in every detail of the story and resolves all the conflict. All the characters here point toward him. And he, in the final chapter, perfects them all. Through the particulars of this one family, God is telling a very great story. God builds the beautiful edifice of his glory, one dented, discolored brick at a time, doesn't he? These small, insignificant people play a huge role in God's eternal, cosmic saving plan. Think about that. Little, widowed Ruth, wandering around, finding a place to glean, plays a part in God's cosmic saving plan. In Ruth, we see how our small narratives are part of God's plan to extend his grand narrative to the edges of the cosmos. Today, the gospel, according to Ruth, is that there is a greater kinsman redeemer, a humbler servant, a greater son, who fills all of our deep emptiness. Let's consider Boaz first, the kinsman redeemer who points us toward the greater kinsman redeemer. What is a kinsman redeemer? We've had some idea of it as the book has gone. God proved himself to be the redeemer of Israel. God is the redeemer of Israel. After he defeated Egypt and led Israel out of slavery, all concepts of redemption are predicated on God's redemption of Israel in the book of Exodus. A kinsman redeemer, then, is a relative who redeems a family member in a way that echoes God's redemption of Israel out of Egypt. That's what a kinsman redeemer does. Their first kind is the redemption of property. If you, fall, if you fell into debt, a relative would pay your debts and regain your inheritance for you. The inheritance of land represents the promised land of God. Right? God gives them the promised land. Everybody gets a section, and so therefore the land that you own actually is a re- reflection of who you are to God. You're his son. He has given you this inheritance. If you lose it, a family member is supposed to help you get it back. Another form of redemption was paying a family member's debt to release them from indentured servitude, just as God redeemed Israel from slavery. Say you were falling into hard times and you sold yourself into slavery. A family member was supposed to come, pay your debts, and bring you out of bondage because Israel isn't supposed to be in bondage. If a family member was murdered, a kinsman redeemer would hunt the murderer down and bring them to justice. That's my favorite. (laughs) It's a different kind of justice than we have now. If you killed me, my brothers would hunt you down. That's a very, I like that idea. (laughs) 
The last form of redemption would be marrying a widow to provide them with an heir so that the inheritance and name of the deceased would remain. Now, this one is complicated. If I died, my brother was supposed to marry my wife. I'm so glad that that isn't the case anymore. <laughs> After I've just praised them. <laughs> my brother would, supposed, would, would marry my widow, and their firstborn son would be would inherit what was mine. And then any children they have after that, their sons and daughters, would get everything from the Redeemer. That, that, that was the most common way the kinsman Redeemer worked. God redeemed Israel and led them into the promised land. So kinsman Redeemers redeemed family members in a similar fashion in regards to inheritance, land, freedom, and life. This was a gracious provision of the law. God loved his people and loved what he gave them, and he wanted to protect it. And so he provided these laws to protect those things that he cared about. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. He is going to marry Ruth, buy her husband's property, and hopefully supply a replacement to inherit that property and continue the name of Elimelech in the land of Israel. The kind of redemption, this kind of redemption could be, of course, very messy. If the redeemer was already married, that was a problem. If he didn't provide a son right away, that was also a problem. If, he, if there was no brother to the deceased man, that was also a problem. There are not a lot of great examples of kinsmen redeemers in the Bible. In fact, there's very few. This is one of those laws that God provided for that Israel failed to really practice. They didn't really do this as much as they should have. So the kind of love and covenantal faithfulness that Boaz is extending to Elimelech's family is very rare. It's what makes it so remarkable. Though the law said to do this, not very many people did. And Boaz is doing it. So he's already just quite something because, because of that. Now, Jesus is a kinsman redeemer. He's a kinsman redeemer on our behalf, and he fulfills, actually, every job that a kinsman redeemer was supposed to fulfill. Here's what I mean. Jesus' older brother in the flesh is Adam, who died. Adam died. Jesus is the second Adam who took his place. Jesus redeems us from slavery to sin. He makes us his bride. He redeems us from slavery, and he redeems himself a bride, the church. And he makes us children of God who inherit with Jesus as co-heirs of redeemed creation. Last but not least, Jesus also hunts down our killer, Satan, and brings him to justice. So as you can see, Jesus actually fulfills every concept of a kinsman redeemer. He redeems a bride, an heir, an inheritance, and destroys Adam's murderer. He does all the things a kinsman redeemer is called to do. It's quite a loaded metaphor, but it helps, I think, to understand that the story of Ru- what the story of Ruth is all about. It also gives new contours to our relationship to Jesus. Right? We're supposed to talk about God, explain him as we go in and come out. This is what it says in Deuteronomy, as we sit down and rise up. We're supposed to explain Jesus all the time to each other, to our children. We're supposed to talk about God. And the more things we have, the more ways we have of talking about Jesus and God, I think the better equipped we are to do that. And so here, for all of us, there's four more ways we can talk about Jesus that we couldn't, well, before I studied this stuff earlier last week. It takes all the stories in the Old Testament and all the characters to unpack who and what Jesus is. We learn from Luke 24:27 that all of the Old Testament is about Jesus. In Luke 24, 27, he opens up the scriptures to his apostles, and he explains how all of it had to do with him. 
So Jesus is such a dynamic character to us, such a dynamic person, that it takes all the stories and all the characters and all the events in the Old Testament to explain who he is. All of the scriptures are about Christ. Ruth is about Jesus' lineage. We've already established that, but it's deeper than that. Jesus is the kinsman redeemer, the greater kinsman redeemer. Let's look at some specifics as to how Boaz points forward to Jesus. Boaz goes from the threshing floor. He goes right out in the morning to the court. And the court is the city center. It's the gate where people come and go. It's the only place wide enough to actually um, have something like a gathering that he's going to have. And in the gate sits the elders. The elders are the judges. So he gets ten of them. That's how many you need to have a case. And he gathers them together. And lo and behold, it says in the book of Ruth, right then the other kinsman redeemer just happens to walk by, which that's very funny, just like back when Ruth just happened to come into Boaz's field. God wants this to happen, I think, as much as Boaz does. So here's the other kinsman redeemer. Boaz gives the other kinsman redeemer the option to, set, to step up and to redeem um, Ruth and the land that belonged to Elimelech. But he thinks it's too high a price. This other guy thinks it's too high a price. It's actually funny because most commentaries refer to this guy as Mr. So-and-so because he doesn't have a name. And the reason he doesn't have his name is nobody cares to remember him because he doesn't do the thing that Boaz does. He doesn't do the thing he's supposed to. And it's very significant when names aren't remembered in the Bible. We should forget this guy after the story because he's nothing remarkable. (laughs) It was too high a price for him to pay. He wanted the land, but he didn't want the bride. The first Adam thought fighting Satan was too high a price to protect his bride, Eve. He thought it was too high a price. He said, no, let's wait and see what happens. Jesus thought no price was too high to pay for his bride, the church, and neither does Boaz. Okay? We see this connection between the two of them. Boaz will take Ruth. Boaz follows the law completely to redeem Ruth, just like Jesus fulfills the law perfectly to redeem his bride. But Jesus fulfills every law perfectly, something Boaz could never do for his wife. As much as Boaz loves Ruth, he can't take away her sin, and he cannot die for her. (laughs) Boaz uses precise legal terminology in chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. He wants to be exact and by the book. Jesus often states he's acting to fulfill what is written, because Jesus, too, wanted to follow the law by the book. Okay? Here's another connection between the two of them. Boaz is a great kinsman redeemer, but Jesus is the greater kinsman redeemer. Ruth has a husband, but what of death? What of sin? What about Israel? There is still no king in the land. The land does not yet know peace. Israel is in decline. What of the promises to Abraham? Whatever Boaz might do for Ruth, it's a beautiful story. Mankind is still enslaved to sin and under the curse of death. As much good as Boaz can do, as much as he is like God already, he can't redeem all of mankind or all of Israel. So Boaz serves as a pointer. He's a type. God is teaching his people through Boaz about what his plans are to redeem not just one woman, but all of mankind. Ruth was poor. Mankind is spiritually bankrupt. Ruth sought protection under the wings of God and a godly husband. The church also needs protection under the wings of God and a godly husband. Both of those roles are fulfilled in Jesus. It's interesting in Luke 13, 34, that Jesus says he would spread his wings over Israel if they would simply cry out to him as Lord. He uses that same metaphor that Boaz and Ruth are using. Jesus is the great kinsman redeemer. When we come to him, he makes us his own and covers us with with his wings. 
Ruth received water and grain from Boaz for nourishment. The church receives living water and the bread from heaven in Jesus, which nurses, nourishes us unto eternal life. Boaz fulfills the legal demands to redeem Ruth. Jesus fulfills the legal demands so that we can stand before God righteously and without blemish. Jesus is the greater kinsman redeemer. He fulfills this role in a grander, more complete fashion than Boaz or any other Old Testament kinsman redeemer ever could. Just as Jesus is the greater king, he's the greater prophet, the greater priest, he's the greater Moses, the greater David, he's also the greater Boaz. Here's one more way to look at our king and our savior, Jesus Christ. John MacArthur wrote, Boaz is a picture of our kinsman redeemer. The Lord Jesus Christ, who bought us for himself out of the curse, out of our destitution, made us his own beloved bride and blesses us for all generations. When you come to the Gospel of Luke, as we remember, in chapter 2, verse 38, there were a group of people in Israel who were waiting for redemption. They were waiting for the Redeemer, and they were not disappointed. When Jesus came, Hebrews 9.12 says, he brought eternal redemption. Those who seek to know the true God are redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the price in full to make us his purchased possession, his eternal bride. And that's just getting started. And as I said, Jesus fulfilled all the roles of a kinsman redeemer. All of this tension in Ruth that is beyond the characters, Boaz, Ruth, and Naomi, Jesus fulfills it. This is what's so fascinating about the Old Testament. Whenever you get into these great stories and these great characters and all the things that they're doing that are wonderful, there's still so much left undone. There's still so many questions. The point of reading Ruth is seeing how God worked out his cosmic plan of salvation in the everyday lives of seemingly insignificant people. In the small fulfillment of narratives like Ruth, God is pointing forward to the great fulfillment of the grand narrative of salvation. Learning to interpret and understand your own narrative is a faith-building exercise. Which character are you? What is your story? Learning that your small narrative is taken up by God to tell in miniature the great gospel of his son gives us both hope and faith. What is God's narrative? What is the grand narrative that we are all a part of? Joy cometh in the morning. Day follows night. Death proceeds resurrection. Boaz, Boaz risks all his future happiness to obey God's law. He died to himself to live for God's glory. That's what this story is about. That's what all of our stories is about. If they reflect God at all, if God is in them at all, what you see is joy cometh in the morning. What you see is death and resurrection. Boaz risks all his future happiness to obey God's law. He died to himself to live for God's glory. And on the other side of that grave was the joy of having Ruth. And yet so much was left undone. Even for Boaz, his joy was yet, in, was yet complete. Jesus endured his circumstances for the joy set before him. And on the other side of that gra grave was a redeemed bride, the church, you and I. You and I. The joy set before Jesus that he did everything he did on Calvary was for you and I. We are the redeemed of the Lord. He died for us. He lives for us. This is the great, it's, it's just fantastic. 
It's, it's what I love about this. It, it makes me a little sad for Ruth and Boaz that they didn't go on to see this. But the reality is, right, you, you sitting there right now, you are the joy set before the Lord that he endured all he endured for. Do you live that way? Do you live as the joy of the Lord? All of redemptive history is a story of a great prince who slew a dragon and got to marry a fair maiden. This is what I tell my kids. What is the Bible about? Kill the dragon and get the girl. It's a good story. It's a good story. It's a great redemptive story, and you are part of it. You are the bride, the redeemed bride. Boaz gets to be a small picture of that grand story. That's Boaz's true reward. That's our reward to be Christ-like, to be part of his story, to be made like him, to be the same kind of character he is. And we can only be like him if we know him and know what kind of narrative his story is. And being characters in that kind of story, a story of redemption, selflessness, and love is the point of our lives. He didn't redeem us so that we could go on our merry way. He redeemed us to be characters, the same kind of characters that he is, to be characters of redemption, to be characters of others, right? to love others, to be focused on others, to look outward. What we find here to reinforce all of this with Boaz is Ruth is also an example of this kind of life, a life of service that points toward the greater servant. Ruth is many things. She's many things, but chiefly she is a servant. She threw her lot in with Naomi back in chapter one when she said, what's yours is mine and what's mine is yours. This is true neighbor love. We've seen Ruth go out to work hard in the fields to provide for Naomi. We saw her follow Naomi's plan to attain a husband. Seeking a redeemer, she is serving Elimelech's family by trying to provide an heir. She's even serving the dead at this point. Ruth's service to the dead is mentioned several times in the book, and this is what it means. She is serving her deceased husband and honoring him, even as she is serving Naomi and Boaz. Boaz considers her proposal to him as a service to him when, because she could have gone out and married anybody. Ruth serves. Right? Ruth serves. That's the epitaph on her, on her tomb. Ruth serves. It's in her nature as a daughter of the living God. Ruth refers to herself as Ruth the servant in 2.13 and 3.9. God is demonstrating what his children are like. In chapter 1, she turns her life over to him. And what does turning your life over to God look like? Service. It looks like serving others. Once you go down the path of the Lord, it's a journey of service. What we're going to see, though, here in chapter 4 is a greater service than she has already demonstrated in any other, in any other aspect of the story. Okay, first, the elders bless Boaz when he takes Ruth as his bride, and it's very interesting what they say. If you look at verses 11 and 12, chapter 4, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah, and may you be renowned in Bethlehem. The elders recognize what kind of character Ruth is. She's an exceptional character. And they want Ruth to do a service for all of Israel now. Remember, these are the days of the judges. Everyone does right what's right in their own eyes, and there is no king. Israel has declined. The house has crumbled. 
the elders invoke the name of these two matriarchs who literally built the house of Israel with all of their sons. They're the mothers of all of Israel. Their 12 sons are the 12 tribes. They built the house of Israel. They're invoking these two names because Israel needs a new matriarch. The elders are hoping Ruth is that woman. With all the loving service she has demonstrated, who's better qualified to serve all of Israel? Okay, they're saying quite a lot about what they think about Ruth. They, they see in her life the fruit that God has brought, and they're, they're honoring it. Now, the last service that recorded of Ruth is the most remarkable of all, one that might be hard to understand, um, and you ladies may appreciate even more than, than we men do. But in Ruth 4.16, it says, Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Ruth has a baby. Ruth carries the baby for nine months. Ruth goes through all the trouble of the labor, and, and she places the baby in Naomi's lap. Here is the baby. Here is the replacement for all that you have lost. Here is your second chance. Here is the hope in God that you should have had all along. Look at what God has done. She turns the baby over to Naomi to raise as a replacement to the people that Naomi has lost. Ruth is a servant. She is compassionate. That's the heart of service. Compassion is making somebody else's circumstances your circumstance. Okay? When, when you don't have money, I take my money and I give it to you. I've taken your circumstance of not having money and made it my own. Naomi doesn't have a baby. She has no children. Ruth takes her child and gives it to Naomi and takes upon herself not having a child. See what, she is a compassionate servant. But even a great servant like Ruth can't take on the circumstances of the whole world. She can't even take on the circumstance of everyone she knows. She can't bring back Naomi's dead husband. She can give her a replacement, but she can't bring him back from the dead. She can't retrieve Orpah, her sister-in-law, and bring her into the people of God. As Ruth looks around the room, think about this. She's looking around the room at her husband and Naomi, at the child, and she remembers at that moment her parents her family, her friends, all back in Moab, all worshiping idols and all far from the people of God. And she can't do anything about that. What can, she, what can she do? Like Boaz, there are limits to what she can accomplish. Even though what she has accomplished are great selfless acts of love, Ruth is remarkable, but she is still just one woman. Who can serve mankind by taking on death and separation from God? Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the greater servant. Okay? He's not like Ruth. Ruth is like him. She has set her mind on heaven and has brought some of heaven into her life. And yet there's, there's a limited amount that she can do. There's still a greater servant to come. There's still a greater need that needs to be fulfilled. As 18th century theologian John Gill put it, as a servant, Jesus had much work to do, and that very laborious. 
This was not only in working miracles, which were works his father gave him to finish as a demonstration of his deity, nor only in going about from place to place to heal all manner of diseases, and so doing good to the bodies of men, nor only in preaching the gospel, for which he was qualified and sent, and thereby did good to the souls of men, but chiefly in fulfilling the law of God in the stead of his people, his greatest service was the redemption and salvation of men. For this was the work assigned to him by God his Father, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. This was the work which was before him when he came, and this is the work he has finished. This is the work he has finished. For he has obtained eternal redemption and has become the author of eternal salvation. Jesus is the greater servant, serving the deeper needs of all of humanity. Through Ruth, the lineage of Jesus proceeds, and in Jesus, the people of God are being built up as an eternal dwelling place of the Lord, just as the elders had hoped. The elders prayed that through Ruth, Boaz would build up the house of Israel. Well, as Jesus healed us by defeating Satan, sin, and death, by binding up the brokenhearted, he was building a holy home to dwell in forever. Ephesians two nineteen through 21. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The household of God is built on the cornerstone of the great suffering servant, Jesus. What Ruth could not do, her son and Lord, Jesus Christ, could. But does that mean all of Ruth's work was in vain? No. Just as Ruth was one small laborer and the task of bringing Jesus into the world, she had a hand in it, her small labors were not meaningless but served the grander scheme of salvation for the world. What she couldn't do all by herself was completed in Jesus. God ordained her labors as part of the great chain of events to bring about the Redeemer of the world. On this side of the cross, our labors are equally small and incomplete in themselves. But we see that they are part of the great work of the Lord. I don't know about you, but most of what I do seems meaningless. I'm one small person. It's very difficult to see any fruit in what we're doing. It's sometimes very difficult, all the labor, all the praying. It's very tiring. But what, I, but what frustrates me, I think, is that I'm trying to do it all by myself. Right? I think I can do it all. I think I can take care of everyone. I think I can save everyone. I think I can change the world. But really, my small bit is what's been given to me. And as the Old Testament says in Ecclesiastes, that is what I should rejoice in because it's the work given to me. But I need to have this broader perspective, the Ruth perspective, the bigger picture perspective, that my small labor is part of God's grand scheme. And he's already overcome Satan, sin, and death. How is my labor in him? If I go out in his name, how is it not, not something great is going to come out of it? It always comes out of it in, if it's done in his name. It took a lot of small moves to place the cornerstone of Christ in his place. And it takes equally small moves to place each stone on top to finish the dwelling of the Lord. I've actually seen a structure made out of bricks that was over, I think, 5 million bricks. It took 
decades. Okay, the building of the Lord fills the heavens and the earth. It takes a lot of work, and it takes a lot of time. And God could just say, bam, and it's done, but that's not how he works. He works on us as we're slowly, faithfully, in faith, placing each brick as we go. Our joy is that though small, our laboring in service and love is placed in its proper place to bring about the redemption of the whole world. We're doing our small bit. These characters die to themselves and live for God. They're always placing their minds on heaven. And because of that, they're able to go out and do little things, right? All Ruth had to do was go out and glean one day and look at all that came out of it. She didn't let her circumstances overcome her. She placed her mind on heaven. A funny analogy is Costco makes nothing on, almost nothing on each item sold. If you go to Costco, they're really only making like, you know, something ridiculous like 17 cents an item. Well, how do they make all that money? Well, because they sell millions of them. That's how they make their money. If you take all those little bits and you add them together, that's quite a fortune. Well, that's what God is doing. He's working a little bit in each of your lives, and together he's accomplishing something quite marvelous. Quite marvelous. We accomplish so little in the days that we are given, but our labor as we seek to serve others and die to ourselves is added to other believers' selfless, loving labor, and this is the plodding force of love that is overwhelming the world. Right? Just like Ruth in the days of Judges, there's no king. Things are bad. They're looking out their window, just like us now. We look out the window, it's pretty grim. There's this thing with the border. There's all these Christians in Mosul. It's hard for people to get a job. But we have to have a greater perspective. We have to have the Ruth perspective. God is working in all, in all of our little lives to bring about something grand, something that's going to be hard for us to imagine when it, when it arrives. We need to read books like Ruth to get the heavenly perspective, to give us hope that God is working beyond the edges of our story to weave his glory out of the meager thread of our days. And what we see at the end of the book is the birth of Obed, who is a source of just such hope. Because he points forward to a greater son of promise who fills all of humanity's deep emptiness. Ruth puts a son in the hands of Naomi, and this fills the once empty widow with love, with peace, and with joy. This son outstrips Naomi's wildest expectations, though. Because by providing for this one family, God provides a king for all of Israel. David descends from Obed. Not only could Naomi not have imagined the joy of having even the baby Obed in the darkest days of her story, it would have blown her mind to know how far God was going to go in blessing the nation of Israel through this baby. Not only that, though, of course, on this side of the cross, we are living in Naomi's, Ruth's, and Boaz's fifth chapter, well beyond the edge of their own story. We see what God provided not only for the whole nation of Israel, but for the whole world through this one family. We get to see their story on a scale only possible from heaven. And that is our lesson. This is what I'm talking about. The story of each of God's children has implications and outcomes beyond anything we can imagine. The darkest possible days, the darkest seasons, at times whole lives lived in the valley of the shadow of death are all swallowed up in the glory of God's story in which we are all characters. 
because all of our stories are in the hands of God who knows the end from the beginning, who exceeds the wildest imaginations of every person. We need to have hope. We need to put our faith in him. We need to set our minds on heaven. It's very easy to be distracted in mind and spirit. But as we sang earlier, we have seen what God is willing to do to save us, to redeem us. We've seen how far he's willing to go. Our hearts and our spirits should be at peace. Right? Our hands are usually idle because there is a tumult going on in here and in here. But God has brought peace to these things. We know that the, he has overcome in our place. Naomi is filled with joy in the little Obed, but she could not comprehend that one day a son would come who would fill the deeper eternal emptiness of her soul. No matter how much that baby filled her hands, there is still a deep emptiness inside of her. And that emptiness has been filled. Ephesians three fourteen through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you, you, may be filled with all the fullness of God. If life in Christ is this good, okay, we have the Spirit with us. We have been filled with his Spirit. He has come and cleansed our heart to pour into it himself. We are full of God. We are full of God. What must our fifth chapter be like? If, if this is the fourth chapter that we're in now, what must our fifth chapter be like? How high could the peaks of glory possibly reach? I know that the Christian life is not a ticket out of here to heaven, but too infrequently do we let our hopes, our expectations, and our imaginations dwell on how staggeringly glorious the resurrection is going to be. And it shows both in our apathy and our culture. Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade in England, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Ruth and Boaz set their minds on heaven. They were at peace in here, and therefore their hands could be busy. They could go out and do Ruth could go out and glean. Boaz could stake his whole happiness on what happens with the other kinsman redeemer because they they set their minds on heaven. Look at what they were able to accomplish. And it's not because they looked out the window and thought, how in the world are we going to get ourselves out of this? It's, you know, God's going to get us out of this. God has something planned. He has a fifth chapter. He has something beyond the edges that we can't see. And by putting their minds on that reality, they were able to go out and do quite something. They were able to go out and change the culture, and the trajectory of mankind. Little, tiny, widowed, poor Ruth. You're in the fifth chapter of Ruth's story. 
Ruth wouldn't believe the good her descendant would bring through his life, death, and resurrection. But she trusted God. She had faith in God, and so she obeyed. She risked. She was bold. God is building his house through us. Are we idle? Because of fear, because of doubt, because of uncertainty, because of sin. Are we idle? Are we oriented towards heaven? Do you live as if there is a dawn beyond the sunset of death? Do you live as if there is a God directing your path through all of this nonsense and darkness and doubt to the glorious dawn of the resurrection? There is a fifth chapter for us. And if this chapter is this good, how glorious could the fifth chapter possibly be? It staggers the mind. Look how much more glorious Ruth's fifth chapter was compared to where she began in Ruth chapter 1. And be that kind of character. Be a Ruth character, the one who loves much because you're loved much. The one who expects big things from a God who slew his own son to redeem you. If he's going to go that far, how far won't he go? You know what joy and hope there is in Jesus Christ. You've all experienced it. Surrender to God like Ruth in chapter 1. Be as gracious as Boaz in chapter 2. Act according to your trust and faith in God like all the characters in chapter 3. Orient yourself toward heaven, and God will lead you home, and you won't leave this world as you found it, because your hearts and your spirits will be at peace, and your hands will be busy. Knowing how much the Father already demonstrated his love for us in Christ Jesus, his Son, look beyond this world to heaven. Orient yourself by the throne of heaven, and you, find, you will find that some of heaven will slip through you into this world. God planned something greater for Ruth, for Boaz, and for Naomi that they couldn't have imagined. But they trusted God, and so acting in faith, they were bold, they were confident, they were obedient, and they loved others. Just like Jesus. Go and do likewise. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you so much for your word. Father, we are in great need of hope, great need of strength, great need of courage. And your son has come to give us those things. Let us not listen to the noise of this world. Let us not see by eyes of flesh. But let us look beyond all of this to what you've already accomplished for us in your Son. And let us be at peace in our heart and our minds. And let us go into this world and love it and give as you have give, given and as you have loved. Thank you, Father. And we pray, Lord, that you embolden us, that you strengthen us, that you give us courage and hope. Amen.